Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. Three minutes after 8 o'clock, I'm Brian Curtis, coming to you from the mothership here on Broadcast Drive of RTHK. Well, a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, The mood is somewhat mixed this morning across the board, but it may be risk-on here in Hong Kong and China. The preference shares trial scheme juiced up our markets on Friday, and Tomasek made a big move on Watson's that we learned about over the weekend. So does this inspire investors? We'll find out on this morning's program. In our featured segments, we'll talk about the implications of China's economic deceleration, though. We'll also be finding out about how South Korean TV dramas are helping Chanel and some other luxury brands sell their product in China. Our guests include Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting, the Wall Street Journal's editor of China Wealth and Luxury Weigu, and Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. First, a little tease to set the tone. Look, the market was a little taken back aback by this idea that a considerable period of time would be six months. I think six months was certainly at the lower end of anybody's expectations. To raise the interest rates. That's David Zervos uh, from Jeffries uh, and a professor of finance. He gave Janet Yellen a C minus in her performance at the news conference. And here we have more. It shouldn't surprise us that the first time in the seat, you make a couple of mishaps. But that doesn't mean you don't give someone, uh, you know, their just uh, grade. And I think at the end of the day, she did mislead us a little bit. She talked about this being very much an unchanged statement and an unchanged press conference. And there were a lot of changes. Yeah, so we'll hear a little bit more about that as we look at the U.S. economy with uh, both of our first two guests, uh, Peter Lewis and also Barry Wood. And we'll also hear a few more comments from Richard Fisher, the Fed president from Dallas. In essence, what we have done is we have exhausted the efficacy of our quantitative easing. And the issue really is now the next phase of transforming from that to anchoring the base interest rate. Yeah, so that's that uncertain phase now that we're entering is when will they start to raise interest rates and what will be the trigger? Well, mainland stocks rose sharply on Friday and futures point higher here in Hong Kong this morning. The China Securities Regulatory Commission kicked off the preference shares trial scheme. It had been put forward during the National People's Congress. We'll have a word or two about that later in the program. And American consumer spending probably continued to recover in February from the bad weather slump. That's the view of economists. They also think that U.S. factories will show that they received more orders for durable goods. In Germany, we expect a report on business confidence this month to show the extent to which developments in Ukraine and Crimea have been affecting uh, the European economy. And there's some other data that we'll be looking at uh, to see what is happening with growth in China. How much is it cooling? But first, back to Richard Fisher. He says that QE has been a gift to the private sector. Whether it is the total amount we have done or the amount that we uh, did before we embarked on the third leg of that quantitative easing, is we have enriched the balance sheets of the private sector. In essence, what we have done is we have enabled corporations to become muscular financially, to rebalance their balance sheet, and to be prepared uh, to create jobs. But they haven't done so yet. And the question is, What is the incentive that we're providing? 
Yes. So it's a very important question. Uh, all that cash that the corporates have been able to pile up, when will they start uh, doing something with it? Will they hire more people? Will they pay their workers more? Will they invest in plant and equipment? Will they buy other companies? All unanswered questions at this moment. And let's go back to Janet Yellen's maiden news conference and back to David Zervos. He wasn't too impressed. You could have come out and said, you know what, we're a little more optimistic. I would have been okay with that. But to tell us everything was unchanged and then the rate structure moves up. And also, look, the market was a little taken aback by this idea that a considerable period of time would be six months. I think six months was certainly at the lower end of anybody's expectations. To raise the interest rates. Yes, to raise the interest rates. So Janet Yellen said a number of times, well, really not much change here, but then went ahead and uh, did make a change on the 6.5% unemployment rate and also that interest rates might go up around six months uh, after the end of, Q- of QE. So all very interesting stuff. There was also some rather insane discussion about the dots. That's the projections of individual policymakers that show where they think the economy is going, where rate rates might be, and uh, that seemed to indicate that rates will be going up sooner rather than later. Let's say good morning to Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. Barry, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Yeah, let me just briefly tell you and also our audience so what's happening with Asian markets. The Nikkei is up this morning, up about half a percent with a gain of 63 points, uh, slightly lower in Australia, slightly higher in Seoul. We see a little bit of a pickup in the Australian dollar. That sometimes means risk on for China. The dollar yen is now 102.26, not much change. The euro at 1.379, so very close to $1.38, and that's kind of where we were at the latter part of last week. So, Barry, uh, very nice to have you with us on the program. Uh, A lot happened last week. Um, Give us your overall take on the mood of the market. Well, I think uh, as uh, you so well stated just a moment ago, we've got a lot of questions here about QE. And I think that uh, your uh, previous guest was a little bit uh, too harsh on Miss Yellen. You know, look, that's not easy to step out there in front of uh, all of those sharp Washington correspondence and uh, answer questions when you've been number two for a while and suddenly you're number one. And I think she did misspeak. I mean, she's going to be remembered for those three words, around six months. But I don't think rates are going to go up that soon. I think that we're uh, probably into the second half of 2015 before they do. I think that the remarkable thing for me in answer to your question, Brian, is look how little Financial markets have been impacted by this crisis in Ukraine. You find a lot of people saying this is the worst uh, geopolitical crisis in Europe since the Second World War. If that's so, uh, this is uh, pretty amazing that uh, financial markets, equity markets in Europe, North America, and Asia really have been unaffected by it. Yeah, I felt really strange one morning last week when saying the markets went up. Uh, traders were happy that he only took Crimea. And it seemed, uh, you know, it seemed disingenuous. It seemed s- slightly wrong. But then when you take a look at what traders had been discounting, they had been discounting, one, the possibility of a war, and two, uh, that perhaps there would be a sharp move taking the eastern part of Ukraine, or in fact, even all of Ukraine. So when it didn't seem that it was going in that direction, there was a little bit of relief in the markets. Is that wrong? No, I think you got it right. But again, it's a, it's a huge surprise, the mere fact that one would use the term war 
as it was, used uh, throughout Europe, uh, the possibility of that, and markets were unaffected. I mean, somehow financial people are thinking, well, that's not a realistic option. And frankly, I, I still think even with all this saber rattling along the Ukraine-Russia border, I can't believe that anything more is going to happen than already has. But we shall see. Yes, there was a piece by Henry Kissinger a few weeks back uh, before things came to a head. And he seemed to be saying, look, you're crazy if you think that Vladimir Putin is going to allow Ukraine to completely switch over to the EU and control or if not control close association with the West. He seemed to be saying from a strategic point of view, that wasn't going to happen. And now we're in the process of finding some uh, middle point that people find compromise in. Yeah, I think that's a very important point that Kissinger made. He also said, I think, about the same time, that we in the West, particularly in the States, are drawn to large numbers of people protesting for human rights in the streets. And that was a reference to these ongoing demonstrations in Kiev. Uh, Timothy Garp Nash wrote in, I think, The Guardian this uh, past Wednesday, that the real question facing Europe now is whether Ukraine, as it is, can hold together. And that's the big question that's going to have to be faced. You find everyone in the West rushing to a big aid package for Ukraine, but you've still got a country in which uh, half the country is Orthodox, half of it is Catholic, half of it is Russian-speaking, and half of it is Ukrainian-speaking. So the big question, I think, really is, can Ukraine hold together, absent Crimea? So uh, we shall see as all of this progresses, but we'll also get more about what the West particularly Mrs. Merkel and particularly Mr. Obama and Mr. Putin have to say to each other and what they've got in mind as they unveil more of their longer-term intentions. Okay, let's switch back to Ms. Yellen. Um, what do you think it means? she means by around six months? You said earlier in this chat that you didn't think that by early next year rates would be moving higher. The rest of the world is very nervous about that, particularly if the um, economic backdrop isn't that strong. So we need to talk about two things. If QE ends in October, then around six months would be as early as March, one year from now. You think it will be longer. Why? Well, I do. I think, uh, first of all, that uh, when she said around six months, I'm really thinking that's nine months. But let's face it, Brian, what we're going to have in the meantime is a whole bunch of data. And uh, we've talked about the hard North American winter for too long now. We're almost into April. So that's behind us. We're going to have a lot more data that indicates whether the auto sector and the housing sector in the United States are truly rebounding enough so that this recovery can move up from a 2% growth path to 25 to 3% growth path. If that's the case, then I think clearly the Fed is going to end QE. And then I would say, depending on the economy, that six to nine months is more likely when we're going to see rate increases. By then, I think markets will be ready for that. I think one of the things that people like to hear from you uh, as you come on this program every Monday morning, some of the anecdotes, some of the out on the street findings that uh, you come across. We have seen a little bit of a pickup in in bank lending that seems to augur well for growth in the economy. Uh, You've talked quite a bit about housing and autos, uh, maybe slowing down a little bit, but still rather strong. Uh, What are some other pearls of wisdom you can drop on us? Well, I'm not sure they're pearls of wisdom, but I am somewhat concerned about the uh, mortgage applications that have dropped off in recent weeks. You know, interest rates on mortgages are still very low, and yet 
people are having trouble getting loans, and therefore there's not a lot of an application for that. So we've got to see some better housing data than we've seen. And let's face it, Brian, in the states, the real problem is we've got political gridlock, and we've got real dissension. If I can just divert to the International Monetary Fund, you know, the Americans have not approved this latest reconfiguration of the fund that was agreed by the United States and all the other members in 2010. Well, that's part of this Ukraine aid package that is now before Congress. But the Republicans don't want to do it, even though the United States is the dominant player in the IMF. So gridlock is not helpful. But the real one that affects the consumer, the person on the street, is Obamacare. And people are still very much in the dark as to whether they're going to have what kind of health insurance they're going to have in six months, whether it's going to cost them a lot more. And then people begin to look ahead to the elections in, in November. So I, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty, and ex, that explains some of that absence of con, capital spending by corporations with all that cash they've got. Okay, so an interesting week, durable goods, a whole lot more commentary, some, quite a few uh, economic reports come out. We'll uh, digest all of those uh, this week, and we'll chat again with you next Monday morning. Thank you. That's Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. <laughs> Very good morning to you. 16 minutes after 8 o'clock. I feel like a shouting across the uh, Pacific there to Barry. Well, I have a guest sitting right next to me so I can lower the tone a little bit. Peter Lewis from Peter Lewis Consulting. Peter, good morning. Good morning, Brian. So some interesting uh, things to talk about. Uh, gold has been falling here of late. Gold down for the fifth time in six days. Um, that's one thing. We can talk about China. There's a whole bunch of, of um, manufacturing data that will be coming out. We'll get the HSBC uh, market report uh, later, and uh, we'll be looking at manufacturing gauges uh, in other places like the U.S. And, and Europe as well. And also we've got this uh, preference shares possible trial scheme that was rolled out on Friday while everybody else was weak. We got really strong on a Friday afternoon. So all kind of interesting. What are you most focused on this morning? Well, I think um, coming back to Yellen, I mean, um, everyone's talking about how she misspoke. Maybe she misspoke in the sense that, you know, we're used to a Fed that is not particularly transparent. I mean, transparency when it comes to central banks is not normally a good thing. But maybe she spoke the truth in the sense that what we've got is a is a Fed that may not be a hawkish Fed, but it's not as dovish as perhaps we thought. And um, she's reflecting maybe what the Fed is genuinely thinking um, at, at the moment. So really, we're going to be in for the next... Yeah, that's a very good point because when she when she speaks, uh, she's speaking for the whole FOMC yep. committee, the yes. Open Market Committee, the Policy Making Committee. She's not just saying what she personally thinks. Yeah, and with the exception of one very notable and quite um, public and vocal dissenter, I, I think you know she probably has a consensus um, uh, amongst the Fed that first of all, um, you know, whatever happens, um, the taper is going to go to its natural conclusion. So QE for sure, regardless of when interest rates may rise will be over um, by October. Now, in terms of when interest rates do rise after that, what, what it puts us in is it puts us in really a, a good news is bad situation because any improvement in U.S. economic data is going to hit the markets quite hard now because this is just going to refocus on, well, perhaps interest rates are going to rise sooner than we, um, than, than we thought because the markets have really been 
all about growth, um, not strong enough to, um, you know, to, to really stop the Fed being in play. We're used to having a very con- accommodative Fed for the last sort of two or three years. Economic growth really hasn't taken off and it has kept the, the Fed in the markets. But that for sure is going to come to an end now. So there's going to be a lot of focus on the data. If that data improves significantly, then we're going to see a lot of volatility in the bond markets, in emerging markets and in U.S. equity markets. Maybe a big impact on bond investors. They may get their, um, you know, their hats handed to them, but it should actually be good for the stock market in one sense. You don't want interest rates going up if the economy is bad. But if you have clear evidence the economy is improving, that should be good for everybody. Well, that, that was how the markets <laughs> used to work. Because <laughs> guys living in the theoretical yeah, land, the, you're not the, out on the street. This was in the good old days. <laughs> but but we've, we've been used to markets that really have been dosed up on, um, you know, on Fed money. And, and what we really don't know is can these markets now stand on their own two feet without the support of a lot of monetary printing and, and, you know, and stimulus? That's really been the major prop underneath equity markets in both um, the U.S. and also in emerging markets as well. If China doesn't implode, if Europe starts growing, it's been in recession for practically five years, and if real growth comes through in the United States, that alone may be more stimulus than the monetary stimulus that we've been getting. Yeah, and and that's what we want to see. I mean, at the moment, we don't have that. Um, We haven't seen um, growth coming from Europe, from Japan, um, China to to support the world economy. But, um, you know, if one of those could turn around, if maybe China, for example, you know, if we do start to see, um, you know, some growth coming out of China, then that will have a big impact on the on the global economy. Okay, a lot of this is uncertainty to chief executive officers. You are a CEO of your own firm now, and you are a former CEO of a bank. So you know your stuff. Uh, is there enough certainty for you now to invest? If you were to be asked, are you pulling the trigger? What would you say? I, I don't think there is. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the problem is, first of all, if you look at, um, you know, China, for example, we're seeing um, a slowdown in growth. I, I think it looks like actually the latest growth targets set by the by the Chinese government are going to be missed because the system is deleveraging with the encouragement of um, the Chinese governments. They want to see, want to get to grips with the shadow financial system. They want to see banks deleverage. They want them to improve their capital adequacy ratios, which is, um, you know, we saw another step in that on, on Friday day with the announcement about the preferred shares scheme. So the government is determined um, to deleverage the financial system. And that in itself is, uh, is you know, will be an inhibitor to, uh, to, to growth. But there's still a bit of stimulus around too. I mean, this one trillion yuan uh, spending model for cleaning up the shanty towns, that, that mm-hmm. should be a kind of stimulus. <clears throat> and actually, if you think about it, um, you know, we talked about it as reform, that they allowed the renminbi to weaken, but they're guiding it down there. And some people would say, look, that's not really reform that's because they're scared of what's happening with the trade picture they want to they want to boost exports with that yeah, and if you look at um, you know what they're competing against, they're competing against the yen, for example, um, which is down you know almost twenty five percent against the euro, twenty one percent against the U.S. dollar. So, you know, they have some real issues in terms of competing against other um, you know economies in, um, in 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 the region. But I think there are ref- there are um, longer term boosts to growth in China. These reforms that are going on, the structural reforms, will make a real difference to the Chinese economy in the longer term. Mm-hmm. 
but they're going to take time to come through. And in the shorter term, um, some of the things that uh, the government and the, and the People's Bank of China are doing are actually negative to growth. And that's going to take the four um, over the next few months, while some of these longer term factors t- take a while to come into play. So if you were investing money now, it sounds like you wouldn't expand your operations in China. But would you um, would you direct the money then more towards the West? What would you be buying now? Well, in, in terms of financial assets, as you know, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I, I would be very careful about um, a lot of the you know the financial assets because we're in such an uncertain environment. Um, you know, maybe the only one that I, I would I would start looking at now is gold. Um, I, I think you know there is a longer term case for saying um, you know gold is a is a good buy. Having said that, if you look at the Chinese equity market, um, it is a very depressed levels. I mean, you know, banks like ICBC are trading on five times earnings. So regardless of, um, you know, the economic picture, you have to look at the, the, the fundamental of the valuations of the market and say that, you know, it, unless there, there is a real problem in the financial system, it's hard to see the market sort of trending much lower. You can see the banks would be perilous territory because some people might say, look, there's too much debt and there's a property bubble. And when that bursts, the banks usually go down. But these banks are getting pretty cashed up. They've got a huge swath of difference between the lending rate and the borrowing, uh, the interest rate that they pay to, to people who, uh, you know, lend them money. Um, and now you've got this preferred shares setup, which should bring a lot of cash into the big corporations. For some of our listeners, their head probably glazes over when you start talking about preferred shares. Can you just explain what that means to uh, to these big institutions? Sure. Preferred shares give the holders of those shares priority in terms of dividends, also in terms of assets if the company has to be liquidated. So they're a sort of hybrid between debt and, and equity. So you see pr- priority over common shares, but yes. but they are secondary, to, secondary to, to the debt. debt. Yeah, they're to secondary to debt. So in terms of the rating agencies, they rate uh, preferred shares less than than the, the debt of the company, but um, they, they take preference over the common stock in terms of, you know, a, a whole range of things, but dividends, liquidation of assets in particular. So this is a good way for Chinese companies to improve their capital adequacy ratios. Because they'll get a lot of money in yes. and they'll agree to pay out 5% or 6%, yep. whatever it is, and that helps cash them up as well, right? That's right. And it, and it doesn't damage their earnings in the, in the process either. So um, extending this initially, it's going to be for the 50 companies in the uh, in the in the Shanghai um, share index, but I'm, I'm sure at some point that will be extended to other companies. But this is a good step. And okay, I'm, briefly on a scale of one to ten, ten being risk on, I'm ready to rock and roll. One being I'm scared to death, I'm hunkering down in my man cave. Where are you right now? I, I would be closer to the risk off um, level oh, at the moment, so around so, four or so, around four, yeah. three or four. Yeah, I wouldn't be the, the scared to death um, okay. camp, but I, I would be the still the risk off. Okay. Thanks very much, Peter. Peter Lewis, the CEO and head honcho at Peter Lewis Consulting. Well, why are the likes of Chanel, Gucci, Louis Vuitton, um, companies like that switching on to Korean style? On one level, it's part of a huge effort to reach the mainland consumer, thanks to the off-the-charts popularity of Korean TV dramas in China, particularly one. Uh, and uh, South Korean actresses adorned in dresses by Celine and other brands are examples of the sophisticated product placement strategies being used. And who better to talk about this than Wei Gu, the Wall Street Journal's editor of China Wealth and Luxury. Wei, good morning. 
Good morning, Brian. So this is sort of an interesting and fun new development. Uh, I think everybody's wives listening to this program are probably switched on to, to that one in particular Korean TV drama. What is it doing uh, towards marketing strategies in China? Well, this particular Korean movie is doing really well in China, and uh, even people who are like white-collar workers, quite successful female executives, they kind of like to watch this as a way to rewind themselves and for them to step back into the small woman mentality or whatever for, for a change. So this one has been really showing off um, uh, glamorous clothing. Every uh, I saw a few posts about even the the sleepwear. There were like 10 different types uh, in one episode or something. So it's uh, really trying to promote uh, the, the another interesting thing about it is, is the value that it promotes was kind of traditional Asian value, but uh, make it much more appealing with all these bling. Why do people need to rewind a bit? Um, I think it's very, well, there are two things. One is very um, competitive nature in China. Uh, so with the workforce becoming competitive, people kind of wanted to see a bit trashy um, uh, entertainment. So not something that will you use your brain after work. Uh, though that may be a bit of controversial that I'm saying this because uh, the fans of this movie actually paid for an advertisement in Korea saying, well, it's in response to a survey saying all these audience who watch this were kind of brainless and not very sophisticated people. But it's clear that there is a market for this kind of uh, show in China. And it's so successful that the Chinese producers and directors, they are buying Korean script, hiring Korean uh, actors and actors to produce movies or shows like this so they can stuff in the Chinese brands. Yeah. As you say, a lot of men watching as well. I mean, uh, none other than Wang Qishan, number three in the Politburo, <laughs> admitted, right. admitted that he was kind of hooked on it. And I think a lot of people are. Um, but in any case, the, the people who are hooked on this, they, they tend to have quite a bit of buying power too, don't they? Yeah, well, Wang Qisheng, I don't think he's hooked on it, but he's good at being very much in touch with what's going on in the society. So it's funny how it comes through. It was during the MPC and the CPPCC, the Chinese Annual Powwow, and he went to a discussion with the um, the the delegates from Beijing, and he asked, oh, okay, so have you, the show that you guys are all watching, the whatever star, what that is, so all these senior Communist Party leaders, of course, haven't heard of it, and he was kind of quite proud, he said, see, <laughs> you guys are being lost in, lost touch, I know this, this is, um, yeah, as for the people who have or have not the buying power, yeah, I mean, there are clearly people who have, so you see the top brands like Louis Vuitton and Celine doing well as a result and there are plenty of people who don't really have that kind of buying power so they are buying lipsticks and fried chicken and beer um, I thought beer. people I thought people were moving sort of down from Tiffany's to Michael Kors and down from <laughs> Gucci and, and LV to coach and stuff like that is that is that not happening uh, well, the top people, of course. I mean, once you have moved up from coach, <laughs> you can't go back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they made they may buy them when well for a change. Um, uh, I think the the likes of coach are doing really well is because 
the addressable market for their products. Yeah. Okay. Better. All right. We got to go. Unfortunately, I, I always think I should give you more time. Next time, I promise, and you can take that to the bank. Uh, no, no worries. And that's what, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Much Happy obliged. Wei Gu, the Wall Street Journal's editor of China Wealth and Luxury. And that has been Money for Nothing. Briefly, markets uh, looking pretty good this morning. The Nikkei's up 150 points. Well, this is, of course, if you're long, if you're short, maybe not so good. Seoul up 13 points, 1948. Australia kind of mixed. And looking at the weather today, this is what kind of day you can expect. Mainly fine. Just a little bit cool in the morning. Daytime temperatures up around 23 degrees. And humid and foggy for the next few days. Money for nothing at 830. Uh, 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 8.31, the news with Samantha Butler. Chinese and Japanese aircraft have joined the search for the missing Malaysia Airlines flight after a cluster of sightings of possible debris over the weekend. Xinhua News Agency said a military plane set off from Perth at first light to join the search in the southern Indian Ocean. The passenger jet with 239 people on board has been missing for over two weeks. Australia's Deputy Prime Minister Warren Trust says searchers will investigate new satellite images from France which show objects floating outside the current search area. That's in a completely different location. Uh, that's about 850 kilometres north of our current search area. So we need to check that out as well. Um, that, that's not in the area that had been identified as the most likely uh, place where the aircraft may have uh, entered the sea. But uh, having said all that, uh, we've got to check out all the options. 